Church, this evening we make our exit from the book of Exodus. So if you would please, for one more time, take your Bible and open with me to the book of Exodus. And our sermon text we will be considering together is encompassed in chapter 39, verse 32, through chapter 40, verse 38. 39, 32, through 40, 38. There was a remarkable story that came out of Oakland, California last year about a 76-year-old lady who needed a cane to walk, affectionately known by her neighbors as Miss Faye. Miss Faye, as many an elderly and retired women are, was the eyes of her neighborhood. She was the head of the neighborhood watch. And it was a good thing that she was. Because she spotted a vehicle that at first she thought was an Uber, slow rolling, creeping down the streets where she lived. But as she watched, she saw the car stop beside one of her neighbor's house where her other elderly friend lived and was out in the yard. And a man, a young man, got out of that car and he went and accosted this old lady. He was trying to rob her. And as Miss Faye watched this and her German shepherd was locked up out back, she didn't have time to go back and get him. And so Miss Faye went and inserted herself in the situation and she turned that cane into something like a Viking clarin sword and she started beating on the assailant. And I'm happy to report that the man jumped in his car and drove away before anything serious began to happen. Miss Faye, the 76-year-old cane-toting lady, became a neighborly hero. And that's what she said when she was interviewed. Why'd you do this? And she said, well, I was just trying to be neighborly. A good neighbor. And that's all I had to say about that, Miss Faye said. The old lady next door having Miss Faye indeed might have saved her life. As Exodus comes to a close, God himself, the one who saved Israel with a strong hand and mighty arm, God himself now moves into his own house right in the midst of Israel. Now, I don't think it would be very profitable for us to read through, again, redundantly, all the details necessarily of this large passage because all of the components of the tabernacle that are presented in 39, 32 through 43, we have visited. But the first thing I want to touch on is just that, the materials presented. Those of you in contracting, or if you've had some kind of contracting work in the past, know all about this. This is what we might call the final inspection in our own culture, the final inspection. You find at the end of chapter number 39 that they brought everything there for Moses to inspect, to watch over. As you read 39 through 32, you will find that the tabernacle work was finished and the people of Israel, verse 33, brought the tabernacle to Moses. They brought, the text tells us, the tent itself, the utensils, the hooks, the bases, pillars, the coverings of ram and goat skins, the veil and the ark and its poles and pieces, the table for the showbread and the golden lampstand and its oil, the altar and its incense, the screen and the grating, the altar for the burnt offering outside, the curtains 
for the court and all their accoutrements and the priestly garments. And they bring it all together, all these materials, and they, as it were, lay them out in front of Moses for final inspection to make sure that everything has been done just so, just according to the word of God, to the command of the Lord. And there are three takeaways, I think, that we can mine out from this last paragraph of chapter number 39. The first of which is this, doing God's work God's way. Isn't there something to be said about that? Doing God's work God's way. Notice verse number 32, for instance. The work of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And then drop down to the last verse, verse 43. And Moses saw, he inspected, he looked upon all the work. And behold, aha, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. And Moses blessed them. What a wonderful principle in scripture we find here in verse number 43. And that is the blessing of the Lord follows upon the obedience to the word of the Lord. Haven't you found in your own life that when you go your own way and try to live life on your own terms and do things that seem right in your own eyes, things tend to spin out of control. How true of that is it in your family life? As a husband or as a wife, as a father or as a son or a daughter, as a child, as a brother or a sister, as an aunt or an uncle. Family dynamics tend to break down when you don't do things God's way. But how beautiful to see a home and a family, a marriage and a life, parents and children who know the word of the Lord and who implement its principles and practice it in their life, the, the well-orderedness and beauty of a Christian home as it follows the word of the Lord is accompanied by the blessing and smile of God upon it. Yes, church, let us, like Israel of old, do God's work God's way. What is it that God, vocationally in your life, or ministerially in your life and relationships. What is it that he has called you to do in your school or at work or at home? What is it that God has called you daily to do in your vocation? You might think, I, I don't see myself as having a significant task. But doing God's work God's way is accompanied by God's blessing. Whatever it is that you are called to do in your life as a Christian, there's two ways to do it. God's way and the wrong way. God's way and the wrong way. I think so often, if you're like me, you would confess, you try to do things your way and you make a mess of things. You think you know best about how to address a problem and you leave off the wisdom of God and the results often are disastrous. Instead, we should do things God's way. And when we do, God promises we will have his blessing. That doesn't always mean smooth sailing, but it does mean the power and presence of God in our lives and the peace of God that guards our hearts. God will cause our work to prosper, doing God's work God's way. Secondly, I think when you look at the presentation and the final inspection of everything that had been done, the symbolism is beautiful. The symbolism is beautiful. We have learned well by now, I pray, in our study of Exodus, that everything in the tabernacle structure proper 
is a beautiful, symbolic Old Testament presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in breathtaking relief. If you study the tabernacle and you miss Jesus, you've missed the point of the tabernacle. The tent of skins, that tent that was made with ram and goat skins was a graphic depiction that God would dwell in skin, not animal skin, but human skin, flesh and bone. And the word was made flesh and made his tabernacle among us, John 1 says. And the Ark of the Covenant with the golden angels at either side of it is a vivid reminder of the resurrection day when the ladies come to the tomb and they look in and see Two men dressed in white, angelic beings, sitting one at the head and one at the feet of where the body of Christ had been laying, proclaiming, He is not here, for He is risen. The lampstand and the table of bread in the Old Testament proclaims that God in Christ would be the light of the world and the bread of life and the altar of incense. That our Christ always lives to make intercession for us. That he pours effectual prayers and that what upholds you and me and establishes our souls as secure in the Lord is that Jesus is praying for us. And the screens and the curtains for the entrance to the courtyard proclaims that on the one hand humanity is cut off from God. But there was a door over which was a screen by which one would enter. And it is a reminder, but there is one way. The one who said, I am the door. And if any man enters through me, he shall go in and out and find good pasture. And the garments of the priest, do they not tell the sinner that there is one who has a glorious and perfect robe of regal, spotless righteousness in which we may be dressed and by which we may have our nakedness and shame and sinfulness all covered and blotted out from the sight of God. Oh, I say to you, dear friends, the symbolism is beautiful in the way the tabernacle vividly portrays the beautiful Savior of mankind. And thirdly, I think we could remark that the inspection, the final inspection of the tabernacle components and elements remind us of the certainty of a day of judgment. The certainty of a day of judgment. After everything had been done, after everything had been prepared, after every, all the work had been completed and preparations made, they lay them out before Moses and Moses conducts a thorough inspection to see if it passes the muster of the standard of God's holy commandment and judgment. And it is vivid in bringing to mind that what the New Testament tells us is that one day we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of everything that has been done in the body. Revelation tells us that John saw and he looked and books were open and another book, books of the lost and a book of the elect. And the lost were judged according to their deeds that were written in the book. If your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, you will be judged on judgment day according to your works. 
And those works will never pass the scrutiny of God's judgment because the fundamental command of Scripture has been laid aside and ignored and disobeyed, which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We are facing, perhaps very soon, a final day of inspection. I ask you, what kind of life will you have lived to present before the Lord who gave you your life? And you have a stewardship over it. May the Lord grant us grace that on the day of judgment we will have crowns to lay at the feet of Jesus. We will be able to say, Lord, by your grace I have given myself in service and dedication for you. When the Lord inspects our lives, may they be found to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ at his appearing. So the materials, the materials are presented. Secondly, as we move into chapter number 40 and look at verses 1 through 33, the materials are assembled. Having passed the inspection, they are assembled. Drop down as everything is put together to verse number 16. This Moses did. That is, he oversaw as like a foreman the construction of the tabernacle, the anointing and ordination of the priest, and everything was followed. The tent is now put up. And Moses did it according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Verse number 18, first sentence, Moses erected the tabernacle. Believe it or not, this is where Exodus reaches its high point. Uh, This is where the book comes to a climax. Uh, This really is where the book has been trending The entire time, the building of God a house, piece by piece and ever so carefully and deliberately, they began to put the tabernacle together and stand it up. Um, Sometimes I like to try to use hopefully sanctified imagination and imagine some of the scenes of scripture and what it might have looked like. And what it might have looked like as you looked out and you saw these Israelite men working and Moses overseeing them as as all the joints of the tabernacle start to put together. As everything is coming together, as the poles are brought together and the, the hooks are hung from them and then they hang the curtains on them. And they're taking all the equipment in and finally all the work is finished and they all kind of take a step back, maybe how you did when your house was ready to be moved in and you just took a look or you took a picture and said, it's ready, it's turnkey ready, it's ready for me to move in. Everything has been done. I tried to imagine that in my mind and what that must have been like. And then I couldn't help from there to begin to imagine the wondrous mystery The wondrous mystery of what it must have been like in the darkness of Mary's virgin womb. As she was told that the power of the highest, the spirit of God would overshadow her. And the thing conceived in her would be called holy. And to imagine what marvelous mystery it is that the God of the universe was conceived in the womb of a virgin to become flesh. Just like any other human conception. As the Holy Spirit began to develop the tiny little bones and muscles in the the fetus of the Christ. And imagine the Holy Spirit 
drawing and printing out on his, on his newly formed flesh little fingerprints as he is as the Spirit of God is skillfully knitting the body of Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, together in his mother's womb. What a high and holy and marvelous concept is this, that the God of glory was conceived in the womb of a lowly virgin and put together, assembled sacrifices and offerings, Hebrews tells us, could not take away sins. So the Son of God said, A body you have given me. And the Holy Spirit put that body together. The true tabernacle and dwelling place of God. Until he was fully formed and delivered as a baby. And brought into the world. The tabernacle, the materials were assembled. Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. There's something to be said not just about starting the good work. But finishing the good work isn't there. If you would be like Jesus, that's what we ought to aspire as a testimony when we get to the end of our life and the end of our days to be able to say, I have finished this course, as Paul said. Jesus, as he's facing the cross, prays to the Father and says, Father, I have given them your word. I have kept every one of them in your love. I have finished. I have finished the work that you sent me to do. And the next day as he had hung on the cross for six hours and his body was wrecked and his tongue and his mouth were dry and all having been fulfilled regarding his humiliation and suffering, he he, uh, uttered one final glorious victory cry, Te telestai, it is finished. The work of redemption has been accomplished. Like Moses and God's Israel, the greater than Moses and the true Israel, the Son of God finished the work. They destroyed that temple and as he said in John 2, in three days he raised from the dead and he has called you and I to be at work building and working in his kingdom We're to be building, that is, lives for the glory of God. You remember how in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul was talking to the church about how he had labored for the kingdom of God. He had worked for the kingdom of God. And what was it that he was laboring in? He was wanting to see Christ and Christian maturity formed in the church at Corinth. For he said, I planted and Apollos watered and God gave the increase. We are God's co-workers and you are God's building. And the New Testament tells us believers as we relate to one another to build each other up. Build each other up in love. I pray that you and I will be able to say with the Apostle Paul that we have finished our course for it is not just how you start off, child of God. It's how you finish. It's how you finish. So let us not be weary, church, in well-doing for in due season we will reap if we faint not. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let us see the work of God, go forward through our feeble and frail attempts and watch God's Spirit build a house for His honor and His glory. The materials were presented. The materials were assembled. And then we come to the end of Exodus where we find the materials indwelled. God moves in. Verse 34. Then, 
At the end of verse 33, Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I mean, can't no church machine of smoke duplicate what happened here? The glory of God came down. The Hebrew word is Shekinah. It is the the heaviness of God came down and it filled the tabernacle just as it filled the skies as the angelic host on the night in which Jesus was born sung alleluias and praises to God. So the glory of God comes down. And in verse 36, we learned that throughout all their journeys, when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their days. So during the day, it looked like a pillar of a cloud that rested on this house. And at night, it looked like a blazing pillar of fire. The the point is, everybody could see that this is where the presence of God was. This is what we call a theophany, incidentally. A theophany. Theophany is a a theological word that uh, compounds two Greek words, theos and uh, phaneros, which means an appearing of God or an appearance of God. And here God's appearance is shrouded, not revealed. God's presence is shrouded in a cloud and in a fire. And what this indicates as you read verses 34 through 38 is both a tension between transcendence and eminence. Transcendence, that is, God is so high and holy, so different and other than we are, that he is unapproachable in some sense. God is unapproachable. What happens when the glory of the Lord fills the house, but that Moses, the mediator himself, can't even go in? Later on, this is recapitulated when the temple is finished in Israel's history and the priests cannot even stand up to minister because the glory is so thick and heavy. It's saying, you can't come here. The glory is too much. The weight is too heavy for you to approach God. It's his transcendence. But on the other hand, paradoxically, if you think about it, it's an indication of his eminence, isn't it? He's transcendent, high, and holy, and unapproachable. And yet the same God is imminent, close, accessible. Because the cloud and fire itself was a visible representation that everywhere Israel went, God was right there with them. God was living right there with them everywhere they would go. And what this, I think, is a... A wonderful truth to stir up within us is that we may not approach God on our own initiative, but we may approach God by his commandments. If you go to the very next book, the book of Leviticus, in Exodus, Israel comes out of Egypt. In Leviticus, Egypt is coming out of Israel. 
and the way to approach God is laid out in the first seven chapters by five offerings, five sacrificial offerings, the burnt meal, peace, sin, and trespass offering, as if God was saying, you may approach me if you will approach me through the means of a sacrifice. God wanted them to know that when they come to him and they trust in him and they believe in him, he is with them wherever they go. Child of God, be strong and courageous. For your God, the Lord your God is with you, says Joshua, whithersoever you go. Jesus said at the end of his life, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The Spirit of God has come down upon us, no less than it did at the tabernacle. No less than it did at Pentecost when the Holy Ghost of God was poured out on the church and the gospel power went forth and men were cut to the heart and believed savingly on the name of the Lord. And so as the Spirit of God has come down on you and me, we are to go forth proclaiming the name and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, God's Son, whom the Father has made to be both Lord and Christ. And what he says is, as you go, Christian, be bold, be brave, be strong, be courageous. Why? Because he's with you. You can serve him and love him and speak for him and stand up for him because God is with you. And if you're by yourself, you're not by yourself. You and God are always a majority. Israel was a tiny little nation. And this tiny little tabernacle was something or someone who was omnipotently mighty. God was with them and that meant everything for their journey, didn't it? Everything for their journey. Uh, I read of Admiral Nelson of the British Navy in times gone by. He was a great seaman, a sailor. He was a leader of men and the sailors who served under him loved him. Loved his leadership. They were, they were dedicated and devoted because he was such a fine and upstanding leader. One man, Robert Stopford, was sailing under Nelson in the West Indies. And he wrote home as he was kind of homesick. And he, he wrote to a loved one and he said, we're, we're half starved to death. We, we barely have rations to eat. And we are inconvenienced by being so long out of port and being out on the sea. We're ready to come home, in other words, is what he is saying. But we have one reward. We're half starved. We're homesick. We want to go home. But we have one reward. And that reward is we are under the oversight of Admiral Nelson. Things are hard. Things are difficult. I miss home. But one thing consoles me. And that is I've got a great admirable who is with me and watching over me. So it was with the Israelites. That's how it was with the Jews who were embarking now out into a wandering time in the wilderness. There was little comfort, little food, little water. But do you know what would buttress their heart and soul? It's the same thing that will buttress your heart and your soul in wilderness, desert times of life. It's that you have God with you. This is how you and I ought to look at life. We might be tested, we might be put upon by various trials, but God's presence with us and within us strengthens us, does it not? No matter, no matter, church, our external circumstances. Thus the message of the book of Exodus, really, in a nutshell. That's what it's all about. We, too, can you trace the parallels as we've studied Exodus? You and I have been delivered. 
and we're awaiting arrival at our final destination. Like Israel of old, we're poised to reach our rest. On this journey, we follow our holy Redeemer as he is guiding you and me to the promised land. There's not a cloud or a pillar of fire that leads us, but the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. And he brings us to the goal of our salvation just as surely as the cloud and the fire guided Israel throughout all their wilderness wanderings. People of God, take comfort in this. Take comfort in this. The God of the Exodus is still yours and my God. And he is still at work guiding us through all the whims and waves of life. And he leads us and guides us to what Hebrew says is a better country than Canaan. A heavenly country. As we walk this pilgrim way, dear saint of God, we are waiting for an even greater glory than the Shekinah glory at the end of Exodus to be revealed. The glory of Jesus Christ at the end of the ages. The Bible tells us that one day Jesus will come again. And when he does, he will come on the clouds of sky in great power and great glory. And there will be no need ever again for any tabernacle because Jesus himself will take us into the presence of God and the Lamb will be the light of that city and we will see him when he appears. We will appear with him, says the New Testament in Colossians. We will appear with him in glory. Once we were in bondage to sin, enslaved by tyranny, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our Passover lamb, God has delivered us, you and me, from the Egypt of our sin. And now he is leading us through an earthly wilderness with all of its difficulties and dangers. The great God of the Exodus has promised you and me this. I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. And I will never forsake you. In the church he has set up a sanctuary where we may now enter and worship in his presence. And one day he will come down in glory to take us up to a glory that will never end. This will be the great and final exodus that God will accomplish. He will take us out of this world and transport us body and soul into a brand new world. And never again will we be oppressed by a tyrannical Pharaoh of sin, fallenness, sickness, or death, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen, church? Is this good news to your soul? Let us pray. We bless and praise you, Lord, for this wonderful book of Exodus. What a joy it has been to be in your word. And we pray, Lord, that though we come to the conclusion of this book, that its truths will be written not just on the page, but in our hearts. That you are the God of deliverance who has brought us out that you might bring us in. Who has delivered us from the thraldom of sin and Satan. Bring us to a land of everlasting rest, hope, and inheritance. And so Lord, as we continue to walk through dry places, oftentimes Lord, tested and tried as Israel of old, and what seems to be a Long 40 years of wandering. Grant us, O oh Lord, patience. Meet us, Lord, with all of our needs. And as Moses prayed so long ago, go with us, be with us, as you have promised, even to the end of the age. May we be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.